From India's largest newsroom, I'm Meenal Baghel and this is the Times of India podcast. What you just heard is a clip from the 1986 film Man Eaters of India directed by Alex Kirby. It happens to be BBC's first feature film in India, a dramatized account of the life of Jim Corbett. It captures how he changed from a hunter to a conservationist to a protector of the Indian people. The film is set in Kaladungi in the lower reaches of the Himalayas where the legendary hunter lived in the winter months. Not far from his dark bungalow which today has been turned into a museum is India's oldest wildlife reserve the Corbett National Park famous for the largest number of tigers in the country In the past one week there's been much controversy around renaming of the park eventually prompting the Uttarakhand Forest Minister to officially clarify that there is no such move afoot Caught in the middle of this has been the legacy of one of India's most famous huntsmen credited with having saved the tiger from extinction in India but today we know Jim Corbett from the stories that we have grown up reading the most important thing to understand about corbett is that we remember him today because he was a writer we don't remember him because he was a hunter uh he wrote about his hunting experiences but if he hadn't written about his hunting experience i don't think we would know who he was Right. Uh, and so he's a storyteller he's someone who is able to put words on a page in a very compelling manner and uh, is someone who uh, ultimately gives us a narrative that combines both the excitement and adventure of the jungle as well as a sensibility for conservation and uh, natural history he was um doing the hunting back in the 1920s and 1930s but in fact he was writing his books in the uh 50s when he was uh, 70 years old or close to 70 years old manitas of kumar was written a little earlier but most of his books were written when he was 70 towards the end of his life so what it is is you're getting the stories of someone looking back on his life looking back on his experiences and recounting those tales now he obviously had told those stories many times and he was famous in nanital as a storyteller and uh, yeah. you know people would invite him to dinner just to hear his stories 
so these were stories that he had told many times before. And then finally, when he puts them uh, to paper, uh, what you're getting is a raconteur who has, you know, embellished, uh, polished, uh, fashioned these stories in a compelling manner. So I think that's one of the things that is is so exciting about his work, even today, is that uh, this is not somebody who just sort of scribbled down his thoughts or his memories. It's somebody who really thought about how am I going to tell a compelling story. That's Stephen Alter, author of over 20 books, including In the Jungles of the Night, a novel about Jim Corbett, which was published in 2016. Born in Missouri, Uttarakhand, Alter has written extensively on the Himalayan region. He has, in his personal book collection, the first edition of Jungle Lore, signed by Corbett himself. This is the book that would go on to become The Man-Eaters of Kumau. In this interview with my colleague Jairad Singh, Stephen Alter talks about the making of that classic. Jungle Stories was Corbett's first publication. And it was published uh, sometime in the 1930s, I think 1932 or 33. And it was self-published. He published it in Nainital. And um, he published, printed only 100 copies. And these were distributed to his friends. Um, there are a lot of very interesting things about the book. One was that it was printed at a press in Nainital, where the it was a small press that simply printed greeting cards and business cards and things like that. So they only had to print one. They could only print one page at a time, and then they would disassemble the type and then print the second page and the third page. So it took almost six months to print the entire book. Um, and this this was a book in which uh, he, uh, in a sense, it's a first draft of Man-Eaters of Kumau. Uh, the... Many of the stories appear in Manitas of Kumau. A couple of them appear in other books uh, later on. But what happened was that this book was uh, published uh, in the early 30s, and then someone recommended it to uh, the viceroy, Linlithgow, and he read it and enjoyed it and then recommended it to Oxford University Press, who uh, then gave it to a young editor named R.E. Hawkins, who was one of the famous editors at OUP. And he then uh, encouraged Corbett to add some more man-eater stories, and ultimately it became Man-Eaters of Kumau. So as somebody who has grown up reading uh, Corbett stories, there, there is a lot of um, empathy, um, even, even in Tales of Hunting, where he writes about... Um, and there's so much more happening while he's chronicling the jungle. Um, could you, could you, as somebody who also writes on 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 wildlife, talk about certain aspects of his writing which pay sort of homage to the jungle and the larger sort of environment um, that he's in? He was writing out of a genre that had been preceded him for many years, uh, which were these sort of shikar stories and tales of the. Um, Indian jungle. I mean, whether it was uh, Sanderson, who was writing 13 years amongst the wild beasts of India, or uh, others who were writing their own shikar stories one form or another. So Corbett was coming out of that tradition. But what is interesting about him is that he 
he takes it in a very different direction. And in the sense, he wants you to understand the complexity and diversity of nature uh, that surrounds him when he's hunting a man-eater. I mean, he may be hunting the man-eater, and that's the the essential plot line to the story. But along the way, he's noticing which bird is calling, which tree is overhead, which flower is uh, blooming at his feet. And I think that's the thing that makes him entirely different from the uh, other Brits who were writing before him, uh, who were essentially trying to tell you, listen, I was a very brave man and I went into the jungle and the tiger charged me and I killed it. Uh, Corbett doesn't go there. What Corbett is trying to say is I went to this magical place, which is the forest. Uh, and in that place, I had a certain uh, errand to accomplish. But at the same time, I was appreciating and enjoying everything around me. And as a nature writer today, and I think many nature writers who followed on his heels, whether it was Kenneth Anderson, whether it was Salim Ali, or whether it was M. Krishnan or others, they, in a sense, drew inspiration from Corbett in the sense that they understood that people aren't going to be uh, put off by learning some of the details of the wild environment that uh, we pass through. Uh, we don't just want a tiger charging at us. <laughs> we don't want a gun going off. What we really want is that experience of the forest that surrounds us. What drew you to write a fictionalized tribute about him? Well, there were a couple of things that inspired me to write uh, In the Jungles of the Night, which is a novel about Jim Corbett. One was that I had been thinking for a long time about writing something about Corbett. And initially, I thought it would be nonfiction because, uh, you know, obviously he's he's a historical personality. He has, a, you know, name recognition and all that sort of thing. So I thought to myself, well, let me write something about his biography or his his context or whatever it might be. The, the problem that I faced at that point was that there would appear to be no new material uh, that I could draw upon for a nonfiction book. Uh, the first biography of Corbett, uh, book-length biography, was written by uh, D.C. Gulla in 1979, and then Martin Booth had written Corbett Sub in 86. And uh, so there wasn't really a lot of material to draw upon. So then I thought to myself, well, let me uh, try and fictionalize uh, this personality, this character. And that gave me a great deal of freedom because then, then I could sort of take what I knew about Corbett and turn it into a story, a fresh story, a different story. I, I include a, a man-eater that never existed uh, in my novel, and um, and yet I try to tell it in Corbett's voice. So that that was really where I uh, came from. Now the interesting thing is that since then, uh, through a friend uh, Akshay Shah, who is DC Kala's literary heir, if you would, um, we've discovered a, a sort of trove of papers. Uh, relating to Jim Corbett. And uh, so Permanent Black is going to be publishing uh, a collection of these papers called the Corbett. We're at least tentatively titling it the Corbett Papers. And these include uh, recollections from his sister, Maggie, 
it has Jim Corbett's will in it. It has uh, a chapter from D.C. Kala himself. It has a chapter from a book by Corbett's elder brother, uh, which which is, uh, you know, highly fanciful um, and exactly the opposite of many of Corbett's books. So there's yeah. there's a lot of material that we've been able to pull together in this book, and I hope it'll come out within a year or so um, mm-hmm. and add to the Corbett uh, lore and uh, uh, literature. Tigers, except when wounded or when man-eaters, are on the very whole good-tempered. Occasionally, a tiger will object to too close an approach to its cubs or to a kill that it is guarding. The objection invariably takes the form of growling, and if this does not prove effective, it is followed by short rushes accompanied by terrifying roars. If these warnings are disregarded, the blame for any injury inflicted rests entirely with the intruder. These lines are from Man-Eaters of Kamau, where Corbett tries to explain why tigers turn dangerous and why these large-hearted gentlemen, as he calls them, need their own space. According to Bivash Pandav, who is the director of Bombay Natural History Society and who has spent a great amount of time working in Uttarakhand while leading the Wildlife Institute of India, Corbett was extremely passionate about tigers and took great pains to study the jungle they inhabited. Corbett uh, was exceptional from today's uh, hunters or uh, people who are permitted to hunt uh, or shoot down man The difference between Corbett and others, I'm not telling today people who are going and shooting man are bad, but Corbett actually went after it in a very, very systematic manner. He tracked the animal down. He always gave the benefit of doubt to the animal. He tracked the right animal. He waited, waited, and waited in between several people. Actually, even after Corbett started his operation, several people have lost their life to the same manator which Corbett was tracking. But Corbett never lost faith. He has, in case of manator of Rudrapag, he has actually come back to his place and returned back again. So has made several attempts, tried to follow the animal, tried to understand the animal, track down the right animal and shoot it. So many times I firmly believe if you're tracking knowledge of understanding the animal, knowledge of tracking, knowledge of knowing the forest is not right, you may end up in shooting down the wrong animal. So that is the biggest disservice that you can cause to a species. So the amount of time Corbett has taken, the amount of observations he has made and the kind of involvement he had in this whole episode of tracking down and shooting the monitor was phenomenal, was unparalleled, which is not to be seen in today's world. Although Corbett continued to hunt for most of his life, he exchanged the gun for the camera after he was introduced to British photographer F.W. Champion. According to Alter, Corbett was the first person to record moving pictures of tigers using a 16mm cine camera. But Bivash tells us that Corbett was also not a huntsman in the traditional sense as we know it, which is why it's important to understand what actually constituted hunting in those days. Whether it was a British or it was an Indian who was armed with an ammunition, uh, hunting was the practice. It was not illegal. It was very much a legal way of doing 
um, uh, things. So you cannot say that hunting was bad. Everyone was involved in hunting. Rather, hunters those days actually protected a lot of wildlife uh, reserves or wildlife areas. But when it comes to Jim Corbett, uh, all the man-eating episodes or the elimination of the man-eaters, uh, he didn't hunt uh, out of uh, choice. He hunted them because there was a need to shoot down those animals. He was asked by the government of that, that time to go track the animal and shoot it down. So he didn't do it out of joy or out of pleasure. He rather by shooting down those animals, he did a great service, not only to the mankind, mankind, he also did a great service to the tigers. Because any tiger that loses the goodwill of people or that becomes a man-eater loses the right to survive on this world. In 2012, Vivash, along with his mentor, AJT Johnson, an acclaimed biologist, undertook an exhaustive journey to retrace the footsteps of Jim Corbett when he went on his hunting expeditions. Here he provides us a virtual map of Corbett's Kumau and tells us how much of the jungle, which the writer so finely described in the earlier 20th century, still remains. So I will uh, tell you about uh, this Chuka uh, and Thak Manitur, uh, two villages on the bank of Sarada River. I accompanied my guru, Dr. AJT Johnson. So both of us uh, uh, went. We started from Purnagiri Temple. Purnagiri Temple is a very, very picturesque temple located on the bank of Sarada River, a little 10, 12 kilometers uh, north of Tandakpur uh, town on the eastern part of Uttarakhand, bordering Nepal. And Sarada is still very beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful rivers that I have seen in the Himalayan foothills. So from Purnagiri Temple, uh, Corbett climbs up, rather we climbed up a village called Kot Kendri. And from Kot Kendri, we descended down to uh, Chuka. So Chuka, uh, Corbett talks about, those days Corbett talks about villages emptied in the fear of man So they were like ghost villages. We did uh, go through the ghost villages, but villages have left those areas not because of man-eater nowadays, because of lack of employment in the hills for better avenues. So still those kind of ghost villages are there. Corbett talks about a mango tree where he goes, there is a stream below the mango tree. He goes and drinks water from that. And then he comes across the pugmark of the man-eater. So the mango tree is still there. The uh, stream uh, is flowing below the mango tree. The Chuka village is still there. I mean, five, six years back when I went, there was no road to the Chuka village. I presume government of Uttarakhand has recently made a road to Chuka village. But those places are still remote. All those descriptions are still valid. He talks about sitting on the bank of Sarada River, angling, catching some fish. And while catching fish, seeing some goral on the opposite side, on the Nepalese side. We did scan those slopes and came across a few gorals on those uh, slopes on the Nepalese side. Uh, we did try to uh, angle uh, and uh, hook some fish on the confluence of uh, Sarada and... Uh, it was Mahashir uh, fish? Masir, golden Masir. Right. Uh, we, could not, we could not. Dr. Johnson tried his best. We could not catch any fish that day. Then another story Corbett uh, talks about, uh, he is going to shoot uh, uh, the Chuka man-eater. Uh, no, I'm sorry, not Chuka man-eater, Chogat, Chogat tigers. And he walks along 
the Nandur River. It starts from Chorgalia, and that day it was a 14-kilometer walk from Chorgalia to uh, Aulakera. There is a forest rest house, Aulakera. So Corbett is accompanied by Ibotson, Ibotson who was the commissioner of Gadwal region those days. So Ibotson and Corbett, I mean, both of them go. Corbett spends a lot of time angling. And he writes about catching 147 golden masir on the bank of Nandur River. Uh, the masirs were not there in Nandur River, unfortunately, due to uh, very destructive fishing practices. But after Nandur was declared as a wildlife sanctuary sometime in 2004-05, I presume, and fishes have come back. Everything is still there. I mean, it's it was a privilege for me to have followed the footsteps of Jim Corbett, walked in the same area where he had walked, looked at the same pool of waters in Nandur River and see Masir still fishing and still swimming in those rivers. So whatever description are there, Corbett, all those places are very much there. And the good thing is most places are still there intact. You go to Dalkania Rest House um, uh, above... Uh, on the upstream of uh, Nandur River, you see the two big rocks in which Corbett lies down and observes the tiger. All those things are there. The descriptions are absolutely accurate. Uh, I I would say the forest uh, from Corbett's time till date, the areas where Corbett walked, observed animals, shot man-eaters. Uh, I would say the wildlife still remains, much of the wildlife still remains intact. Although there has been good amount of forest good amount of forest has been lost yeah. over the last 100 years. And I would say there are three primary reasons. Yeah. One reason is existence of DDT. DDT came into existence post-World War II. Uh, as a result, uh, Tarai was conquered because Tarai was very prone to malaria. People were not inhabiting in Tarai because of yeah. deadly malaria. So once DDT came into existence, people started clearing Tarai and conquering Tarai. Second, when India got its independence, large number of uh, um, uh, what is it, farmers were brought in and settled from Punjab province of Pakistan. People came and settled down in the Tarai. So as a result, we lost large tracts of Tarai grasslands and forest. Third reason is the emphasis on plantation forestry those days or production forestry, in which we converted the Tarai into commercial forestry, uh, commercial species like teak plantations. Extensive teak and eucalyptus plantations were carried out for production forestry. And that was the need of the hour, that those days emphasis was not on wildlife conservation in the 1950s and 1960s after the enactment of Wildlife Protection Act and after this Corvet Tiger Reserve, Rajaji National Park all came into existence, things became much better. And today, some of those areas support, like Corbett Tiger Reserve, today supports world's single largest tiger population. Nowhere, no single space under this sky has so many tigers that Corbett Tiger Reserve has. 200 plus tigers in Corbett Tiger Reserve. And adjoining forest supports more than 150 tigers. So all those areas still maintain the characteristic. Uh, what Corbett describes, there are many areas, more the Corbett, I mean, FW champion, some of the great foresters actually worked in these forests. Mm -hmm. And whatever they have described, we still continue to witness those things while walking or working in those forests today. What place does Corbett occupy in the pantheon of colonial icons? Do we remember him for the British Army colonel who hunted man-eaters? Or is the conservationist who left his home to the people of Uttarakhand 
and moved to Kenya as India gained independence? Or do we remember him as the best-selling writer in whose memory the country's most popular park is named? While it's easy to see him as a face of colonial legacy, what is not well known enough is that Corbett, who felt very much at home in the Tarai region of Uttarakhand, had a complicated relationship with the British Raj, as Stephen Alter explains. His grandfather had come to India originally and, uh, and then was, uh, lived in India. And then Corbett himself was ultimately born in India. And I think that's perhaps one of the most important aspects of Corbett's uh, biography is that he was what at that point in the caste system of the British Raj, he was known as country born. Now, country born was pretty far down the ladder because uh, you were then seen as somehow um, beneath the other Brits who came directly from England and, uh, you know, somehow had a higher pedigree than that. But what's, what's fascinating is that though he was country born or what is often called country bottled, uh, he was, in fact, able to elevate himself up the hierarchy through his hunting and through his storytelling. So that ultimately, by the age of 50 or so, he was hobnobbing with the governor of the United Provinces. He was meeting the viceroy, taking him out on shikar. He was suddenly had sort of risen up the rungs of that ladder through uh, purely through his adventures and his storytelling. And I think that that is something Thing that he was very conscious of. Um, ultimately, in 47, he made the difficult decision of leaving India. He had been traveling back and forth to uh, East Africa, to, uh, Tanzania, or what was known as Tanganyika in those days, and Kenya, and he had invested in coffee plantations and other uh, businesses there. So he was clearly preparing himself to leave India. Um, I think largely because most of his closest friends were also preparing to leave. Uh, Percy Wyndham, who was the uh, commissioner of Kumau, um, Ibbotson, who was also one of the top ICS officers in Kumau, uh, they were all heading to Kenya, knowing that uh, India was soon to be independent. So he did leave. He did leave. And there's no question about that. And he obviously made a choice that uh, for him, leaving India was the only option. Uh, my novel plays with the idea that he may have had some regrets once he got there. Um, I can't read his mind, but in a fictional way, I, I sort of like to think that um, even though he made that choice, it was against his own better judgment. What there's no denying of about all else, according to Bivash, is his love for Kumon. See, I mean, uh, one thing uh, about uh, Robert, I would say many people told that he left uh, India after independence and uh, he went and settled down in Kenya. And that was there was a general fear among Europeans. Everyone was scared about their lives and all. I won't blame Corbett for that. But the kind of books Corbett, after going back to Kenya, he has written, I don't think... Uh, I mean, I would say if you read uh, Corbett's book, My India... I would say that is the height of patriotism. No amount of speech, no amount of writing will match the way India, the way corporate describes uh, 
about this country in his book my india and not only describes the country describes the people the way the kind of empathy he had for fellow indians was simply amazing not only he had empathy he has not only written about it he has actually demonstrated it in, st- in terms of establishing a small village called choti haldwani near his winter home at kaladungi and then when he left he left everything to those villagers it was not like he sold that to somebody and left the entire village village choti haldwani that he established handed over that land to the people whom he brought in and established that small establishment and left the country and even after leaving the country he was con- continuously writing to the person who actually owned the house his winter home at kaladungi if i remember correctly his name was uh, charan chiranjit singh or something like that i'm forgetting the name but his letters are there so he asks how many how are the people how are the how is the forest is everything going on well i am concerned about the way roads are coming up so still we are all concerned about the way roads are coming up in and around corporate tiger reserve uh, so they they have needs to be that we need to maintain a balance but thanks to the efforts of the government for protecting this beautiful wilderness area naming it after jim corbett and continuing his legacy today's episode is produced by jairad singh and sunai marathe For a daily spotlight on people, ideas and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We are available on TUI Plus, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, reach us at tuipodcasts at timesinternet.in.